Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 480th show of ROI. And our guest today is my dear friend, Dr. Eric Jensen, Associate Professor of History at Miami University, who is going to talk to us about German history and documents and images website. Joining us for the second segment of the show are History Buffs Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. To begin with, I'd like to welcome back my friend Eric. How are we doing? Oh, we're doing great, John. It is so great to be back on the show. It is a charming part that you are one of our regulars, and I'm thrilled to have you back on again. Uh, as we know, the first segment of the show is called Farouk Denarin, which, by the way, I had to ask him how to translate the title of the show. <laughs> and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, Eric, can you start, off, start us off with some information on how you became involved in the German History and Documents and Images website? Oh, well, all right. Thank you. So the German History and Documents and Images website, which is just... Um, you can you can Google it by just typing in that name or GHDI. It was started about 20 years ago. And the goal of the project, which was run by the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., was to make a lot of primary sources in German uh, available to an English-speaking audience that might want to use them for history courses. So it was designed to take these diplomatic texts and treatises and uh, pop culture articles and song lyrics and passages from poems and novels and all sorts of different um, bits and pieces from our vast historical past, translate them into English and then post them on a website where students in Canada, the United States, Great Britain, Australia, Ireland could all access them and do a type of research into German history that would otherwise be inaccessible to them. And so this started about two decades ago. It's a terrific website. It's a terrific resource for people teaching um, German history, just in general German studies, film studies, uh, people who are engaged in um, a kind of areas of, of German politics and German sociology. And about four years ago or so, four or five years ago, um, the people who were running the website decided that it needed to be updated and that it was time to add some more documents and to kind of freshen up the site a little bit. And the site covers all aspects of German history. I was invited to come in and focus on the part of German history called the Weimar Republic, which is Germany between 1918 and 1933. And so over the course of two or three years, I compiled a bunch of different documents, kind of organized them, wrote some introductory texts, and they are now being in the they are now in the process of being sort of coded to 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 go up on this website. And the website reboot should be sometime later this fall or or early next spring, and it'll make a, a website that's already a great resource for people who want to study German history but don't speak German, uh, an even better resource with many more materials and much more updated introductions and kind of extended uh, references to new works of German history that people uh, can consult if they're doing a research project in this area. 
Okay. How many other scholars along with you are been brought in to work with and uh, develop this website, if I may ask? Oh, gosh. Uh, there are probably another dozen to 15 scholars working on um, all different areas. So there's uh, late 19th century. There's the period right around the time of unification. Um, there's, a, there's this period uh, prior to the revolutions of, of 1848 known as the Fornouts. Um, there's um, the post-war period and the, the, the divided Germany. There's um, post-1990 reunification of Germany. And then there are scholars who work on early modern Germany. Um, and I, I believe there might even be a section on medieval Germany. So there are a lot of different areas covered. And I am just covering one small 15-year but very important mm-hmm. uh, uh, segment of German history. Um, could you give a, a quick um, lesson to our listener, listeners uh, a little bit more about the Weimar Republic when you said it's an incredibly important time in German history? Yes, it is. So could you express to them why this part of uh, German history um, is so vital to know if you're going to understand modern German history? So great question. Um So the Weimar Republic refers to this period um, between the end of the First World War and um, the rise of the Nazi regime in 1933. So it's about that that 15-year period. And and people often refer to it as as Germany's um, first experiment with democracy, um, which is a little bit of a misnomer because uh, Germany had a type of democracy. And and in fact, in some ways, a democracy that was even more democratic than than many other uh, countries in Europe. Already in the late 19th century, they had... Uh, universal suffrage for um, for the Reichstag, but um, during the Weimar Republic, uh, Germany implemented uh, an incredibly progressive and visionary constitution that was designed to kind of expand um, what was kind of a promise at the end of the 19th century of democracy to expand it and put it as fully into practice as possible. Um, It was also a period in German history in which um, Germany, uh, which had been modernizing technologically, kind of scientifically in terms of social developments for a long time, was really starting to grapple with the consequences of this very, very rapid modernization that it had undergone. Uh, It was a period in which uh, everyday German life was beginning to change rapidly. Germans were um, engaging in all sorts of new um, kind of uh, social movements. Um, they were becoming much more politicized. Uh, they were organizing around um, different um, subgroup interests. There was a thriving uh, social democratic party, a very thriving trade union movement. There was a budding and and compared to anywhere else in the world, thriving uh, gay rights scene. Uh, there was uh, there were very visible and um, and, and pretty dramatic uh, transformations in uh, women's engagement in leisure and um, the job market, um, a lot of new educational opportunities. Um, some historians are referring to uh, an, an, an early and great historian named Peter Gay will refer to this as a period when uh, outsiders in German society increasingly became insiders, and that included uh, social democrats, that included women. Uh, it included um, gay people, and it absolutely included German Jews. Um, so it was a period of, of, of 
a lot of transformation and a lot of promise. There were a lot of um, really dramatic kind of uh, events going on on the ground uh, in Germany with with respect to the economy. Um, There was an initial early period of intense inflation, um, followed by a a relatively calm period, and then a very intense period that corresponded to the Great Depression in the U.S. of really high unemployment. Okay, Um, uh, There was a lot... We can, we're going to continue that with the second segment because uh, Eric okay. and I always have a lot to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called localsloveus.com. Or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. Localsloveus.com. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show, which we refer to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today's show is my good friend, Dr. Eric Jensen, Associate Professor of History at Miami University, and we'll be talking about German history and documents and images website our history bus for today's show are rick sweet and jay swords and rick why don't you start us off okay john uh eric the um you mentioned uh the introduction that you spent three years putting together documents uh outlining in the history of the uh Weimar republic from 1918 to 1933 how did you go about selecting the the documents and the themes that you were going to uh, update this this, uh, historical repository on the web? Uh, Well, that's a great question. Um, So one of the things I did is I canvassed a lot of my colleagues in German history, and I asked them, because a lot of historians use this, and they use this in their classes and their teaching, and I asked them, you know, when when you're looking at this website, what what types of documents seem to be missing, or what would you like to see more of? Um, so that helped to guide um, uh, part of my selection of, the, of these documents. Um, part of my selection was guided by my own interests and what kinds of things I wanted to see up on the website. Part of my um, selection process was guided by which voices I felt were missing. So, for example, there were a lot of uh, documents written by men, as I mentioned in the first segment. Um, you know, women were playing an increasingly public invisible role in public life in Germany. And so I wanted to have uh, a lot of documents um, written by women as well. Um, And one of the things I'll point out, too, is, you know, I was kind of interested in these intersections between issues that we're talking about today and issues that they were, that Germans were talking about in the 1920s. So, for instance, I mentioned um, Germans were grappling with inflation for really the first five and a half to six years of the Weimar Republic, which is something that we are definitely aware of right now. And so I compiled a, a, a bunch of documents that looked at how everyday people were dealing with inflation. And some of those documents, uh, by the way, were originally already written in English. So, for example, um, Ernest Hemingway was a European correspondent for the Toronto Star. Uh, he was stationed part of the time in France. 
But he regularly crossed the border, as did a lot of French people in the 1920s, because things were so much cheaper in Germany. You know, exchanging just a few dollars, you could live like a king in Germany. And Hemingway um, published a series of articles in which he talked about this, you know, almost like predatory practice and a certain amount of resentment that it fostered on the part of German populations living on these border regions between Germany and Switzerland, Germany and France, um, a certain dependence on French and Swiss tourists, and also a certain amount of resentment toward them because they had all this money and they were buying up all these products in German stores that, that Germans themselves uh, couldn't afford. Um, another thing that Germans were talking about in the 1920s that we're still talking about right now, especially right now, is abortion. There was a very active and lively debate in Germany in the 1920s over whether or not to repeal Article 218, which was an article in the German Criminal Code um, uh, outlining outlining who and in which uh, cases people could be prosecuted for for having an abortion. And this was one of the great issues around which uh, Germans on both sides of the debate uh, mobilized in the in the 1920s. And there were there were massive uh, protests and rallies in favor of its repeal. And there were also a certain number of of um, political engagements, especially by the churches, um, in opposition to that appeal. So, so those are just a, uh, two examples. I'll maybe give you one more example of a document that I, I, I thought was especially interesting that also has relevance to, the, to today. Um, and this was a document that I actually came across in Miami's own archive here. Um, uh, Miami is located in southwestern Ohio, which is a part of the so-called German Triangle, which is where a lot of of German immigrants settled throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. And there were a lot of German speakers living right here in Oxford, Ohio. And there's a collection of letters. Um, I call them the Dear Uncle in America letters that are letters to various professors and residents here in Oxford from relatives in Germany in 1922 and 1923, asking them to please send U.S. dollar bills, to please send... Um, uh, commodities that were in short supply, such as coffee. In one case, um, one of the, the relatives in Germany asks for musical instruments to be, to be sent uh, over to Germany, basically pleading to these wealthy Americans to share some of their wealth uh, during a period of time when, when Germans had relatively little because skyrocketing inflation was completely erasing their, their bank account. So that's another kind of set of documents I find really interesting and has a very direct um, kind of local connection to, you know, right here in the Midwest. Okay. Jay. Eric, I'm, I'm interested. You kind of segued me perfectly. So thank you. Um, what kinds of documents, if I go to this website, you know, how much of the website is going to be materials that would be relatively easy to get a hold of that are fairly widespread? Um, how many of them are going to be sort of rare documents um, that would be, you know, in archives and things? And how much of it is going to be sort of that that sort of base level, like you're talking about journals and diaries and letters and things, which, which tend, unless something really significant is talked about or whatever, those things never seem to make it into widespread circulation. That is a great question. So, um, so I would say, uh, you know, some of the, some of the documents that are curated or compiled 
would be readily available if people thought to look for them. So, for example, the 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 stories um, published by Ernest Hemingway in the Toronto Star, obviously, he is a really, really famous author. And so there is a website already that has um, collated and, and compiled all of these uh, Ernest Hemingway stories. I went through and picked out just the ones that related to Germany and kind of curated them specifically for this website. And it'll go under the section on um, economic, kind of ec- the economic history of the Weimar Republic. So those would be readily accessible documents that are just maybe more easily or narrowly curated on this website um, for people who are looking specifically for what Ernest Hemingway is writing about about Germany. Below that, there's another level of documents that would be relatively accessible to people if they had a good reading knowledge of German, but would not be at all accessible to people um, uh, who do not. So, for example, um, I did a lot of work with the diaries of this this great um, expressionist artist, uh, Kita Kolwitz, and um, a small segment of one of her diaries has been translated into English, but not the the sections that that um, that I chose to translate. They, they are available in German, so I just checked out of the library um, Kitakovitz's you know German diary, her Tagebücher, and I went through, and I I picked those entries that I thought were really interesting in terms of what they say about, for example, Kitakovitz's experiences during the revolution of 1918 and 1919. Katie Kolvitz's experiences as a woman living in a society in which opportunities for women are changing. And by the way, Katie Kolvitz herself was already um, very successful and in many ways had paved the way for a number of female artists after her. Um, I, I was really interested at one point in 1927, Kolvitz because she was a very um, socialist-leaning, in fact, some people perceived her to be communist-leaning, she, by her own statement, said she was not. But but she was a very left-leaning artist. She gets invited to go to the Soviet Union in 1927 as part of this very large German delegation to see, you know, 10 years after the revolution, how how great things are going. And she writes a a detailed dispatch and and kind of set of, of, of entries about that that I thought would be really interesting for people who are interested in this relationship between um, the German left and the Soviet Union in the 1920s. So that would be an example of, of another layer of, of resources that would be available if you, if you knew German. And then below that, there's this third level that you alluded to and that, you know, these Dear Uncle in America letters are a great example of. And these are, you know, kind of one-off documents that I, I just happened to come across or that colleagues of mine, pointed out to me um, that, you know, even scholars of, of German history would not otherwise, you know, be aware of or be able to get their hands on. And some of it is stuff I collected when I was in in Berlin, you know, doing research on, on other projects. Um, some of it is stuff is related to this other project I'm working on, on this tennis player named Paula von Resnicek. And some of it is stuff I've just found or, or, or colleagues have pointed out to me in, in some of these like local university archives. So it's a combination of, of all three of these, but, and I think it's precisely um, those, those, those different levels, as you pointed out, that will make this website useful for just, you know, a complete, you know, generalist who, who doesn't even know where to begin to look for materials in the Weimar Republic. Or for someone who, who has a good idea, a good handle on the Weimar Republic, but just doesn't speak German well enough to do German language research. And even for people who are German 
German history scholars themselves, but just want to see like some of these, you know, rarities that have been collated on this website. I think this is true for all the different chapters on this website. I think it's what makes it such a great resource. Okay, so backing up what you were talking about with like Katie Kowitz, um, if I recall, also she was a revolutionary artist who lost her oldest son Peter in World War One, if I'm correct. And she, absolutely, and she did a ton of incredibly brilliant art that is showing the pain of the parents who lost their loved ones. Uh, and if I recall, she takes it from a a, a mother's perspective, which um, at the time women weren't allowed to really do. Or, in all fairness, no one they, there weren't many men or women as great as an artist as she was. Um, but she does an incredible job bridging over from your talking political theory to motherhood and other aspects of German life. Are there like on this website individuals, because it, it is quite vast, where you could kind of like pinpoint in an era saying this is the person like Katie Kowitz who just spreads everywhere and bridges. Is this is a lot of this make up this site? Oh, you mean of, of people who have um uh, influences or experiences right. in, in, in all of these different areas. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was kind of that was kind of my goal. I will say, like, Colvitz is is prominently featured just because um, I, I found her diary so um, exceptionally moving. But also, like, she really is one of these people who is thinking about um, what is going on in a, a number of different areas. She was she was politically engaged. She was living in Berlin. But, you know, she was also very much in touch with how people were experiencing everyday life. And as you mentioned, she herself um, was a grieving mother. In fact, I have a whole set of documents that relate to this unveiling of um, these paired, this paired statue of a mother and father called um, Charwinda Eltern, which is just grieving parents. It's um, in Belgium, right? Up. I think the statue's yeah, in Belgium. Yeah, exactly. It's... It, it's in, in Belgium and in the military cemetery where 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 her her, her son is buried, um, and so a lot of a lot of um, the documents in in that section are looking at how she's writing about this project, how this project is or is not helping her to come to terms with her own grief, kind of the logistics of of getting these um, getting these statues to this site, and also you know really kind of thinking about her experience in, in Germany's experience as, as a very much a European experience and thinking about other parents in non, you know, outside of Germany who are contacting her and are, are um, kind of connecting with her and, and with her experience through, um, through her art. Um, so she's a great, great example. There, there are some other people that I find um, just fascinating. Like there's um, a faith healer who, um, becomes infamous, famous, depending on how you look at it, named Joseph uh, Weissenberg. Um, and he kind of came to prominence in the fall of 1930 in a series of newspaper articles that were reporting this scandal. He was, he was this charismatic religious leader, and he also, also fashioned himself um, uh, a faith healer. Um, he often used um, this type of white cheese called kvart, um, to, to heal people. He, he claimed that, that he, would, he would kind of spread the cheese on people's faces or on parts of the body that ailed them and, and, and claimed that this would, would help to heal them. And there were a couple of lawsuits brought against him 
uh, one by uh, the parents of a girl who claimed to that, that who claimed that their daughter had been blinded by this kind of white cheese healing process. And um, what I find so interesting about this this incident, I mean, apart from just the the the, the kind of the, the inherent fascination, I think, with this phenomenon of faith healing, is the role that this really active Weimar German press played in generating interest in particular stories. And, you know, people often say that, you know, there's a strong, strong connection between a vibrant democracy and a vibrant press. And Germany absolutely had um, a vibrant press that helped to keep, you know, the democracy going for as long as it did. And so, you know, I think all of these, these, these newspaper reports and, and articles about, about, you know, what is going on, even some of these that are kind of sensationalist, like the, the ones around um, Joseph Weisenberg, are, are, speak to like just the power of the German press and how much influence it had. And then I also think it, you know, this, this episode speaks to the desire that a lot of people have in a time of crisis. 1930 was just as um, the, the Great Depression was, was making its teeth felt around the world, particularly in Germany and the United States. And people were confused and they were looking for, you know, help and, and salvation wherever they could. And I think it's precisely in moments like that that people like a Joseph Eisenberg would be especially appealing. So I think it speaks to, you know, some of the things that are particular about Germany, but also some of the things that are, are kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more universal about human nature during times of extreme crises and the way in which a lot of different societies turn to, um, you know, marginal or, or, or otherwise fringe solutions to problems for which they don't see any mainstream solutions, or at least the mainstream solutions don't seem to be working for them. So that, that's another example that I find I find really interesting in terms of both it, it's, it's something that people don't know that much about and don't, don't think that much about, and it speaks to both the particularity of Germany and then also some of these universal aspects about how people deal with or, or can deal with crises um, when, when the mainstream solutions don't seem to work. Okay, it is customary, customary of us that we give our guests the last word on the show. Eric, in about two minutes, uh, why do you think the German Document and Images website is relevant in today's world? Well, I'm going to I'm going to pick up on that what I was just riffing on. I'm going to say like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in in um on this website that is very specific to to Germany in the 1920s. And you know, that's universal insofar as it is an example of how one group of people or or one even a, a, a subculture within Germany in a given circumstance, um, you know, the, the the variety of ways in which they responded. But there are also you know, these moments that, that speak to, I think, you know, kind of these these universal responses to relatively widespread phenomena. I'm going to give you one more example of a, of a universal kind of reaction that, 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 um, that really struck me. 1918, 1919 was um, the big Spanish flu pandemic around the world. Germany was also hit hard. And as I was writing these entries and compiling these documents, it was right in the midst of the COVID pandemic here. And I was really struck by, um, first of all, some very important differences, not only in the level of science, but in the level of, of broader public health initiative and the power of the state to intervene, much more so now than it was at the time. But I was struck by a lot of these 
kind of universal responses to people, you know, in the face of a pandemic that seemed invisible, you know, impossible to predict, incredibly difficult to control, and remarkably deadly. And so I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. So when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 480th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Eric Jensen, Associate Professor of History at Miami University, who talked with us about the German History in Documents and Images website. The history bus for today's show is Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant at KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of Ambrose or KALA. We would also like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala. Peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.